I saw a billboard this past week on a well-traveled road in Vermont. I'd never seen this message before. Here's what it said. Real Christians obey Jesus' teachings. Real Christians obey Jesus' teachings. Now, I thought, I'll bet that's not a real popular message around here. And it reminded me of that old lordship debate that broke out in the 1980s. And for those of you who weren't born then or maybe don't remember that, here's what it was about. The question was, can Jesus be savior of a person's life without being Lord? And there were dozens of books written about that question. There were talk shows all over where people debated it. There were thousands of sermons preached on, listen, can you really be forgiven of your sins, adopted into God's family, and not really take seriously obeying the teachings of Jesus Christ? How much authority does he really need to have in our life? And that, my friends, is a very, very important question. My sense is that the lordship of Jesus, his authority in our lives is something that most of us greatly struggle with. I come from the southern U.S. originally, that's where I grew up, and there's a, there's a saying there, a confession. It's often called the good confession that we often give when people are baptized in water. The initiate makes this declaration. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord, and my Savior. That's the good confession that, that many people being baptized make. And we love that Savior part, don't we? Sins forgiven, no more condemnation, victory over death and sin and hell. But I think that Lordship part really gives us fits. Because if Jesus is Lord, it means that I no longer am boss. It means that he dictates how I'm supposed to feel and think about various things and how I should actually live. What he says becomes determinative in my life. His values become my values if he's Lord. And so I may not feel like saying no to lust or being generous with my money, or tithing, or giving some away to those less fortunate. I may not feel like forgiving someone who has offended me. I may like not feel like stewarding my relationships well and putting all that work into them. But if Jesus is Lord, I allow him to tell me what to do. I hope this makes sense. Let me say it again. His values become my values if he's Lord. That's what his authority means in my life. I don't go with what the culture says. I don't go with what's politically correct at a certain time in a certain culture. I don't go with what's trending in the university scene. I go with Jesus, whether or not it makes me popular in the culture, because he is Lord of my life. And again, just personally speaking, based on the hundreds of conversations that I've had over many years now of ministry, I would say that most people see that as a real challenge. It's nothing new. We're looking at a passage today from Luke chapter 20 
where Jesus was challenged about his authority. There's a struggle going on between the religious leaders as they confront Jesus with three deceitful and very difficult questions in an attempt to trip him up. They want to undermine his credibility. And Jesus' response demonstrates his brilliance and his sovereign authority and that he deserves our complete allegiance today. So let's dive in. We're just going to look at three of these questions from Luke chapter 20. First is a question about the source of Jesus' authority. I'm going to start here in verse 1. One day... As he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, so you basically got all the higher-ups. These are all the religious muckety-mucks in Jerusalem at this moment. They're all coming to Jesus, and they say, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Basically, they're feeling threatened. I mean, let's face it, they've got reasons to feel threatened, right? We saw last weekend where Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. The symbolism was clear. And as the people began to cry out that he was the anointed one of God, hallelujah, hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and all the things they said, Jesus didn't rebuke them. Or say they would wrong and were wrong. In fact, he welcomed their praise. And then the very next day, he goes into the temple and cleans house. He's disgusted by the injustice and the exploitation of people. And now Jesus is openly teaching, and the people are hanging on his every word. No wonder the religious leaders are feeling threatened. I mean, come on. He hadn't gone to their schools. Who was he? He hadn't been through their system that they put religious leaders through. Who is this guy coming and speaking as one with authority? So they want to put him on notice, frankly. They want to put him in his place. And he was kind of on the spot. And he said, look, I have no authority. Then they'd say, then why did you wreck the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles? If he said, I do have authority... He would have been in trouble with the Romans because they were hypersensitive about would-be messiahs who were coming around claiming authority. And they had killed a number of people that they felt were insurrectionists. And so Jesus was subject to be executed by the Romans. So his response here in verse 3 is brilliant. He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism, he's speaking here of John the Baptist, was it from heaven or from men? Now he's put them on the defensive. By the way, folks, whenever you can answer a question with a question, it's a pretty good teaching method. It's a pretty good way, particularly if you sense the question is deceitful or designed to trap you. If you can answer a question with a question, usually a pretty good thing to do. Now, John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod, but he was a national hero. 
His death was considered a martyr's death. And you don't diss national heroes. So these religious leaders here are now in a dilemma. How can they possibly give a straightforward answer to this? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, well, why didn't you believe him? (laughs) But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. They basically copped out. Their initial question was deceitful, and now their answer is dishonest. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Isn't that gritty? That's gritty, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, you talk about grit and shrewdness and spunk. And if you're not aware of that in Jesus, I hope you'll drink this in. He's beaten them at their own little clever word game here. If they had answered Jesus' question honestly, they would have said, yeah, John's authority and his baptism was from heaven, and Jesus' authority, hey, it's from heaven too. But they weren't willing to acknowledge that. And you know what? Most people aren't willing to acknowledge Jesus' authority today, quite frankly. That is a really hard sell in this culture. Satan came to Eve and said, has God been telling you what to do, how to live? She said, well, he he did say we could eat of any tree, except this one tree. He said, the day you eat of it, you can't even touch it, in fact, or you will surely die. Satan sneers and goes, ah, you're not going to let him boss you around, are you? Who is he to have authority in your life? Be your own authority. Do your own thing. In fact, you eat this, you're going you're gonna to have special insight. In fact, you're even going to be like God. You know how the story goes? Eve took some of that fruit and she gave some to her husband. They both ate and the des- result was disaster. They were immediately alienated from God. They were estranged from their garden the garden. They were cast out of that environment and eventually they were overtaken by death. But here's the deal. We're all still impacted by that. And today, you don't even have to work at it. From early on, right after birth, there's this natural rebellion against authority. One teenager got so fed up with his teachers trying to give him lesson work and homework and telling him what he could and could not do that he dropped out of school early and joined the army yeah but now it's even worse right because he's got sergeants barking out orders and he just couldn't wait to be discharged from the army so he could get married and truly be free amen amen all you married folks you know what i'm glad we can chuckle at that Because there's no time when we're truly free from the expectations and input and perceived authority even of others. There's always a government official, a spouse, a doctor, our own children dictating how we ought to live, how we ought to behave. But I hope we understand if we call ourselves Christ followers... It should be settled who the ultimate authority is in our lives. It's Jesus. That's that's a part of the deal. 
Do we struggle with that? Oh, man, do we ever. You bet we do. But no longer is it my will be done. Now our commitment and our cry is thy will be done in my life. And that's why this, that's why this card that we put in the bulletin today I think is, is a great exercise. It's a probing question. What area of your life do you need to surrender to Jesus' authority today? Because somebody's calling the shots. Somebody's in authority in your life. And the question that we need to ask if we claim Jesus is are we just kidding ourselves or is Jesus truly the authority in our lives? Friends, I, I believe that that's a question you'll grapple with. It never goes away. It's not a static thing. Yes, you may think, well, I made that once for all. But then a new situation comes up and you have to ask all over again, is Jesus really Lord today in this situation? Well, the second question here I want us to look at, we're going to skip down a bit, is in verse 20. And it's a question about how God and government interface. Now, this is going to be interesting. How God and government interface. Verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. So again, there's duplicity going on here. They're conniving to try to trap him and get something against him. Okay? So these spies are making a farce of this. They're, they're feigning respect for Jesus, but... Inside, they're looking for some way to trap him. They pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then here comes the zinger. Is it right, oh, and they sounded so sincere, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, let, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever been around people who have these questions and they ask them, they love to throw them out when the timing is right? Whenever they feel like maybe... The Bible is kind of getting under their skin or, or the claims of Christ are getting a little too close to home. They love to throw these questions out. Well, if God is really all-powerful and loving, then why is there so much evil in the world? Come on, just answer that and I'll be okay. Well, how can I know the Bible's really reliable? Well, if you could just tell me what happens to people who've never heard, then I'll be satisfied. If you can just tell me that, if you can just answer that, then you'll have answered all my questions. Or how can I believe in miracles in a scientific age like this? And they throw those questions out. Now hear me. There are fabulous answers to all those questions and many, many more. But often these people aren't really looking for answers. These questions are in their little quiver of arrows and they try to use them to put Christians on the spot and make followers of Jesus squirm. You can give them a brilliant response, but they don't want to hear it. It's simply a smoke screen to try to stump Christians. Well, that's sort of what's happening here. 
I think you'll agree, taxes are always a sensitive issue, right? I'll bet people in the Capital District gripe about taxes more than just about anything. Because we live in a pretty heavy tax situation here in New York. And so I hear people griping about how heavy the taxes are and comparing it to the taxes in South Carolina and other places. But in this particular environment, it's even more sensitive because the Romans are these hated overlords and the people chafed under Roman authority and they begrudged every denarius they had to pay to the government. So when these spies come up to Jesus and ask about should we pay taxes or not, they're trying to trap him. But again, Jesus is so shrewd. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, it is almost universally agreed among students of history, political history, and so on, that this is the most influential political statement ever made by anyone, anywhere. In fact, this statement from Jesus has shaped our understanding of government in Western civilization. Jesus here is acknowledging the validity of the secular state even when that state is corrupt which in this case, it was very corrupt. He's saying, look, there's a place for the secular state, for government, even in this case where the emperor claims to be divine for goodness sakes. There's still a place for government even when it's flawed and corrupt. Now, why is that? Because human government is essential for an orderly society. So even though Caesar may be imperfect, as long as he doesn't require that you disobey God's law, your basic MO as a Christ follower should be to be cooperative. Obey the laws, cooperate with authorities, respect the office of a leader, even if you find it very difficult to respect the actual person in that office. You respect the fact that we need some kind of system to try to keep peace, and order in the world. And by the way, Christians, I would hope this could go without saying, but Christians should be the best citizens in the country. We should avoid frivolous lawsuits that tie up the courts. We should pay our taxes on time and appropriately what we truly owe. We ought to exercise our right to vote even if You think you're choosing between the lesser of evils when you vote? Even if you don't like anybody on the ballot, you should still go and exercise that right. John Adams, our second president, said, Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. But if moral and religious people don't bother to vote, then trust me, the nation's going to suffer. Proverbs 29 says, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. So, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Be a good citizen, but 
Then he said, you give to God what rightfully belongs to God. Now, let me just point out what's behind that. That coin that he asked to see, and he said, whose inscription is on that? Of course, he knew. He was just letting them kind of participate in the lesson. It was stamped with the inscription of Caesar. That belonged to Caesar. Guess whose inscription you are stamped with? The Imago Dei. The image of God. You and I, as human beings, belong to God. We're stamped with his image. And everything belongs to him, including us, because we are stamped with that Imago Dei. Now let me say to you, very personally, if Jesus is Lord of your life, it's going to impact your life as a citizen. In this country, in the state, in this community. It will make a difference in how you vote. One farmer was detained for questioning about an election scandal. And one attorney just knew that he had this old farmer. He knew it because he had evidence on him. And he said, did you sell your vote? The attorney, the attorney asked him, no, sir, not me, the farmer protested. I voted for that there feller because I really like him. The attorney threatened, come on now, I have evidence that he gave you $50 for the vote. And the farmer said, well, now, it's just common sense that if somebody gives you $50, you're going to like the guy, right? Christian, let me ask you something. Do you sort of sell your vote over one or two issues that you think are going to make your life a little bit easier for a couple of years? Just trying to get under your skin a little bit. That's all it is. Just having a little fun. Or, or are you diligent enough as a Christian citizen to study the issues enough, to know the candidates enough, and ask, is there anything here? Anything. There may be nothing. Is there anything here that lines up with biblical values and vote accordingly? Even if it may not put more dollars in your own pocket. Boy, that's a tall order right there. So I say to you loud and clear, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. As a Christian, I have to render to God the things that are God's. I have to seek to know biblical values and know how they impact current issues. And I need to vote in such a way that best facilitates the promotion of the gospel. And of biblical values. And if you do that, you'll be rendering to God the things that are God's. We answer to a higher power. And just one final thing before we quickly leave this and move to this final question that we're going to look at today. I can hear some right now, somebody right now saying, now preacher, now preacher, now preacher. I never mix religion and politics. then Jesus is not your Lord. Jesus is just a hobby for you. Oh, I know that saying, and I, I think I know what people mean by that and all the political history behind that statement. I think I get that. But Jesus better affect your politics just as he better affect your marriage 
Just as he better affect the way you talk, just as he better affect the way you use money, just as he better affect the way you steward your one and only body, just as he better affect the way you handle relationships, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, you cannot compartmentalize life and say, now look, I'm going to let Jesus guide the way I think about this, but this over here, oh, no, 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 I'm going to control that. Jesus is Lord of all these areas, and he must affect every single one of them if we're giving to God what is God's. Hallelujah. Anybody want to breathe? Just go ahead and breathe right now. Just breathe. Whoo. Okay, just breathe. Just breathe. All right, good. I hear you. One final section here I want us to look at, and this is a question, and by the way, this is a Hugely important question. It's a question about the nature of resurrection. In other words, the life to come. Because we know we're all going to die one day. We all have this appointment with death in one way or another unless Jesus returns first. And so the question is what happens after that, right? So Jesus answers another interesting question. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees... now. Notice, this is a different group now, a different sect within Judaism. I'll tell you more about them in a moment. Who say there is no resurrection. Came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, by the way, that was taught in the Old Covenant that the Jewish people were under for centuries in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. So the woman's now a widow. So brother, second brother, does what the Old Testament law said. The second, and then the third married her. Now, they're speeding the story up here. <clears throat> but get the picture each of these husbands is dying, and I just want to interject, if I'm like the third or fourth husband here, I'd be checking my soup. I'm just saying, I'd be, this story is weird. It's getting really weird. I'd be checking the soup at this point. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. <laughs> now this is a silly, shallow question asked with a deceitful design. The Sadducees were considered the religious liberals of this culture. They did not believe in the afterlife at all. They did not believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in demons or angels they believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament were truly inspired. Just the Pentateuch, just the books written by Moses, but all the Psalms and Proverbs and all the prophets, that's not really inspired, they said. Okay? And they contended that Moses in those first five books never wrote about life after death, and therefore it's just wishful thinking. So get what's happening. They bring Jesus into this inane hypothetical situation that was probably sort of a stock little joke for them. 
even though they didn't believe in the afterlife, they said, okay, just for the sake of this question, let's just say that maybe it could be true. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? But Jesus' answer again was profound. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, that age, a dimension, a place, a time that we do not now experience, and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Jesus made it clear. Yes, there is life after death. But our relationships are going to be different. There, there will be no marriage in heaven. Now I realize in making that statement, there will be no marriage in heaven. Some of you are really bummed and some of you are so thrilled. You, oh, oh that's the best news you've heard all week. Because some of you, we keep it real around here, your marriage is troubling and it's no fun and you'd probably go ahead and get a divorce if it weren't for all the complications of that and your own spiritual convictions. And so it's like every day is hellish and you're just barely hanging on. And so when I stand here and say, there's no marriage in heaven, you're like, wow, I get my get out of jail free card. Woo, that's good. But others of you are really bummed to hear that because your spouse is your best friend and you love being married to him or her and your relationship is flourishing. Well, here's the good news for you. If you choose in heaven, even though you won't officially be married anymore, if you choose to spend every day together, you can. You can. You can still be best friends. That's up to you. But marriage as we know it now will not exist in heaven. Now, occasionally at funerals, I hear really bad theology. And I just want to throw this out there just, just to let you know. Uh, I, I hear some of the worst theology around funerals. And one of the pieces of bad theology that I've heard many times, I've had people say to me, right in front, right in front of a coffin where there's a body of a loved one who's passed away, someone will lean over and go, Pastor, she's an angel now. And in that moment, I don't think it's my place right there to become the theology police, if you know what I'm saying. This person is grieving, and their heart is broken, they're distraught. I don't want to pull up my Bible and go, hey, listen, we need to straighten this out. Oh, I don't go there. But people don't become angels. I hope we understand that. Angels are angels. People are people. One doesn't become the other. I don't know where that belief originated, but people do not become angels when they die. Jesus said here, we're like the angels, but in this respect, we do not die and we do not get married. So in that sense, we are like the angels. There will be no more death, no more marriage, no more need for procreation. Jesus then went on to challenge the disbelief of the Sadducees. He proved to them that Moses did believe in life after death and that they had just missed it in their reading of the Scripture. Verse 37. But in the account of the bush, he's referring here to the burning bush, that famous episode where Moses received his calling from God, where the bush burned, but it was not consumed, and God spoke to him out of that burning bush. Even Moses showed that the dead rise. 
For he calls the Lord, quote, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Say, look, Sadducees, you believe in Moses, right? Yeah, yeah. The first five books of the Bible, you believe they're inspired. Well, guess what? In the book of Exodus, right there. And one of the books that you agree is inspired, you have proof that there's life after death. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, past tense. That might imply that they're now dead, completely dead. But I am implying strongly they're going on living somewhere. You just missed that detail. And the Pharisees are all excited because they're adversaries of the Sadducees. The Pharisees did believe in life after death and angels and demons and the resurrection. And they say here to Jesus, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, you, you go get them. Woo, good, good answer. We've tried to show them that, but you really got them there, Lord. Oh, and then they remembered, look, we're opposed to Jesus too. So I guess we better not get too excited. And verse 40 says, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So as we wrap up today, I just want to ask you this. Who is really the authority in your life? When it comes to issues like the resurrection, like your beliefs about life before death and life after death. I hope you're really going to the expert. If you were about to move to the Philippines for a year, and you're going to move your whole family there, and your whole life was going to be altered, but who would you go to get information about the Philippines? Would you go to somebody who'd stopped at an airport for a couple of hours flying through? Would you go to someone who spent a weekend there in Mindanao? Would you go to me? I mean, I. I preached there 23 times back in 1988. Does that make me an expert? I hope you don't come to me. I can tell you a few facts, but boy, I'm no expert. I would hope you'd go to someone who grew up there, someone who knows the culture and the country inside out. Now listen, when it comes to eternal matters, why do you give credence to myth or some myths or some psychic? who claims to have the ability to look into the life beyond and come back. Jesus has been there and returned. He's the expert. Put your trust in him. So when it comes to your own death one day, you know who your Lord is, who you're trusting in, and who you're surrendered to. The psalmist said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And one day, we're all going to face death. That's not to be morbid, that's just to be real. It usually happens rather unexpectedly. And the question is, who are we placing our trust in? If our trust is in Christ, we don't need to fear that moment. Matthew Henry wrote a commentary that's the most popular commentary as far as I can tell in history. More people have read Matthew Henry's commentary than any other single commentary. Most pastors I know have at least one copy on their shelves. Matthew Henry was a well-known minister in Wales in the early 1700s and he 
shares that his father wrote a baptismal statement for each of his children. And here's what his children pledged when they were baptized in water. I just want to read it to you. It's a short paragraph, but boy, is it amazing. I take God to be my chief end and highest good. I take God the Son to be my Prince and Savior. I take God the Holy Spirit to be my sanctifier, teacher, guide, and comforter. I take the Word of God to be my rule in all my actions and the people of God to be my people under all conditions. I do hereby dedicate and devote to the Lord all that I am, all that I have, all I can do, and I do this deliberately, freely, and forever. Amen. Wow. What a declaration. Does Jesus have that kind of supremacy over the way you think and feel and behave? Do you just admire him? Or do you really worship him? And obey what he says. Is he really king of kings and lord of lords? And have you made that commitment freely, deliberately, and forever? I'm going to ask us to bow our heads right now. And I'm going to ask you in this moment to do a little soul searching. And we'll be finished. Message will be done. Would you ask yourself this question right now, once again, once again, is there any area of my life that Jesus is truly not Lord over? He's not the authority in that area. He may be in other areas, and that's awesome. But is there any area of my life where I just have to be honest and say, you know what, I've not really given that to him. I've not surrendered that room of the house as it were to him i've not given that part of my life over and said lord i want you to rule over this could now be the moment could this be the very moment in time where god has shown you that jesus is truly lord of that too that you could yield it to him oh i pray that this would be that moment he would say, Jesus, in spite of the struggle, in spite of the difficulty, I give that over to you as well. I want you in my life to be Lord of all. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Rex.